and Segment Tips podcast. Tour dailies, everybody. I don't know what that was. Johnny, where are we? We are about 100, maybe less than 100 meters from the top of the Galibier. We're currently sitting on the, the side, looking down at the, not quite hairpins, but the snaking road coming up to the summit and beyond that, more mountains, mountains as far as I can see, fans, camper vans. It's the Tour de France, Kaylee. Ian, you've never been up here, have you? I have, I was up here in 2019, Timo That's right, I forgot about that. We saw a lot of Thibaut Pino fans on the way up. As they should be, his, his Nikon. I should say that we don't actually know what's happening in the bike race at the moment. That's one of the problems <laughs> coming up on the mountain. We'll have to find out at some point what's going on. The breakaway, I think, the last time we had signal was nine minutes up the road from the peloton. Mathieu van der Poel, had, I think he was out the back already. Our colleague Kick Nicholson said he looked like maybe he was going to drop out, so he maybe had one final final go at things. Wout van Aert is in the breakaway. There's a couple of other, well, quite a lot of other strong guys, but the group's also down to ten. Um, but now we, without any signal or no one's got a radio near us, so we are just having the full fan experience of waiting to see what is happening in the bike race. Which is kind of why we wanted to do this, actually, is is to get the full fan experience and try to figure out what's going on based off of... It's actually not a super short snapshot because we can see, what, probably at least 10 minutes of racing mm. below us uh, laid out upon the, the pavement. Do you see... Or just even more. Or even more. Yeah, ah, it's probably only it's yeah. probably only ten or fifteen minutes. That's how fast they're going to go. Yeah, we forget. Now this is of course the the highest point of this Tour de France. It will be today, today, and it will be again tomorrow, where they go the opposite direction. Today they're coming up from the Col de Telegraph side. Tomorrow they will come up from the Briançon side, which is where the the stage starts tomorrow. Both are difficult. Uh, this one they're going to have a tailwind up today. And the heat. We were at the start this morning, just very briefly. Ian was grabbing some quick interviews in the mix zone, and we were there just sort of sweltering, just looking at everyone and how how boiling hot it was. It's going to be horrible out there on the road for the riders. Yeah, it was like what, 36, is, I think, is the, the highest we saw when we were down in the valley, and it's something like 10 to 12 degrees colder up here. So what is that? That's uh, in the mid-90s Fahrenheit and probably in the mid, mid-70s, high 60s up at the top here so they'll be all right once they get up here but the lower slopes are going to be pretty brutal i think that's what influenced our decision as well we were heading out from the start and we're like shall we go to the press room or shall we just go to altitude and have a much more comfortable day and maybe also watch the bike race so in the end it was a pretty easy decision it's actually quite rare to actually be able to see any of the bike racing which is uh particularly refreshing about today normally you are possibly sitting in a marquee with a handful of TVs and just trying to trying to piece together what's happening. Here we're piecing together things without the TVs, which is <laughs> quite a bit more fun, but there's a lot more atmosphere. Speaking of atmosphere, we ran into a pretty interesting fella on the way up. Uh, part, I, yeah, like you said in the car, if you just go press room to press room, start to finish, you miss the Tour de France. You miss the entire Tour de France. On the way up today, we did see a, a rather interesting gentleman who has decided that he's replacing Didi the Devil we hear 
Yes, you'll be able to read about it on the on cyclingtips.com later. But uh, I couldn't. I can't remember. I think his name might be Jacques. He was wearing a prison outfit with nothing on underneath, which he was very keen to tell me. And then <laughs> a sign. He had a French flag, I think, and then he had a sign uh, which said "The Earth is flat" in French. And he he has a YouTube channel which I need to check out. He gave me the link to that. And he's basically you know, Didi the Devil. He's he is old now. You know, he's been doing this for years, and he's come to sort of take his not take his crown but like take his place and entertain the fans so and I'm sure if we'd if we'd been looking even further we'd see a, you know dozens more like him we saw who do we see minions we saw some minions out on the road we saw lots of minions uh jumbo visma bees yes. there were some some jumbo visma bees indeed uh and just a lot of french flags and the shack club which is the max shackman fan club which seems to be one guy in a van painted in the german flag <laughs> He was at the bottom of the uh, La Cette de Montvernier, oh, no, yeah, though. Sure, yeah, yeah not, not, not up here in the Glivier. That was cool, the La Cette de Montvernier. How was my pronunciation on that? Uh, nailed it. <laughs> I mean, I, I, my French pronunciation is not amazing, uh, so I'm not, I'm not anybody to correct you. I think you were, you were great. It was really cool. I mean, was it 20-something switchbacks? We're driving up in our, in our rental Audi, and it could sort of barely get around some of the corners. Uh, it... it it is a bit of a sort of a showpiece climb though in that it's not that long they just go right up and come right back down i guess it would add a bit of fatigue you got a, you got a bug on your face i add a bit of fatigue ahead of of the sort of the big major climbs of the day but i, I mean we're sitting at the top of the glibia here and they've still got the glendon to go which is like 11 kilometers at nine percent today is the day where you are like maybe it's not so fun being a, a tour de france bike racer <laughs> you know you sort of you saw them going past at the at the start and it's hard it's hard to read their expressions because it's like obviously this is a, an amazing thing to do but at the same time it's gonna hurt a lot it's definitely gonna hurt a lot i, I think we're gonna see a really sad caleb ewan coming up here in about an hour's time well we will um we'll just hit record over the next uh, over the next hour or so and try to bring you what it feels like to be up here on the Glibier today. Johnny, talk me through what's happening right now. We are watching stage 11, is it, of the Tour de France? <laughs> are we on stage 11? We're on, the, we're, we're on the Glibier and we're watching the race through a French man's caravan door. <laughs> We've also got a very helpful uh, British man next to us who's watching through the window and commentating for us and doing a very good Rob Hatch impression. A helpful British man, what's your name? Elliot. Elliot, what are, what are we seeing right now? Uh, we're seeing Jonas on the front, Pogaccia pulling, Roglic sat in the wheels and Thomas on the back, just, just chilling out at the moment. They're 1-2 they in him, and now we've gone to break. But yes, they seem, they seem to have taken the race to, to Pogaccia. From what, from what we've understood, from the little bits we've seen, there's the Yumbo boys who, who went first and you know, trying, to, trying to take the race to Pogaccia, who's already isolated. And they still have the Col de Granon after this one. And they've got Wav Hanert up in the break up ahead to pull them across the valley once they get to the other side of the Glubier. So this could be interesting. It looks like we have a bike race. Yumbo Visma Bees. Yes. How are you? Yeah, we're very great. We're waiting for Roglic. Cheering very much. Hey, Alo, pay to some. Everybody for Roglic. Say yes for Roglic, yeah. Yeah. We are from Slovenia, so guess what? Will the bees be happy if Vingegaard wins? Of course, of our men. Vingegaard. No, 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 no. Vingegaard. Roglic. Vingegaard. Good. Good. I'm glad we've covered this. Thank you. Ian, can you describe what, uh, what's happening here? Uh, I, uh, no, I mean on the, on the road. On the road? Yeah. 
Like the Atmos? Yeah. Or the road the, the road on the TV? It's an Atmos here. Uh, we have uh, an Australian contingent, one of them in a banana suit. We have a Norwegian contingent that didn't want us to step on their white shoes. <laughs> and we have two dogs uh, in a camper van with the same name. Is that is that correct? Jad and Jad 2. So Jad 2. <laughs> the dog's so nice they named it twice. <laughs> Are we playing Where's Wawa? We're playing Where's Wawa. Where is Wawa? Wawa's down there. There he is, long way away. We, we, we need to describe what we're, what's happening here. We're on a mountain. Still. <laughs> we're looking over a valley and we're spotting Wawa. There's, basically, we can see much of the road below us. The Glibier is, we're, we're well above treeline here. And we can see down, what, probably 3K? More. More? 4, 5K? Anyway, we can see a fair ways down. We can just make out a pile of motorbikes that's probably surrounding Warren Bargee at the moment. Basically, there's a, a few corners where we can finally see the road, and then there's a final one before a long stretch that climbs up the sort of side of one of, one of these mountains sitting in the middle. And uh, we think we can see, it's quite hard to pick out the cyclists compared to the motors and the cars, so we think we can see a lone rider who'd be buggy, and then behind them is a sort of the Simon Guest girl, the remnants of the breakaway, Wat Van Aert somewhere. And then it'll be quite, it'll be about four minutes, I think, probably end decreasing until we see the, the GC or the remnants of the peloton, the GC group. Uh, what's happening down the road, Johnny? Down, what, that way? <laughs> no, 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 like further down the road. We, we have a TV, there's, there's fireworks, there's Jumbo Visma trying things, there's... Yeah, we just got a replay of, of uh, the sort of one-two attack from Vingigo and Roglic. A pretty fascinating 15 minutes at the bottom of the Galibier. I mean, it sort of all came back together, they dropped a large portion of the group, but the, that group came back, so a bit all for naught, but you have to keep trying, I think. It's also we saw last year where we'd get like halfway up these tough climbs and Pogaccia would just drop everyone. So if you've got if Pogaccia doesn't have the uh, strongest team he could have, if you've got Roglic and Vingegaard feeling good and able to one two, we saw there Pogaccia chase both wheels because both of them are still in play. But Movistar for some reason seemed to to drag the group back. That's what it looked like, which is classic Movistar, as you said, <laughs> protecting that sixth place already. <laughs> Who's still there, Thomas? Vingigo, Sepkus. DSM rider, Shim Roman Bardet. Is that Steven Kreisweik as well, just tucked in the back? But Pogacar is, is leading them. There's, there's Nara Quintana as well, I think, just dropped off the back as well of that group. And Roglic is gone. Already 15 seconds behind. Tough to get that back, I think, now. That was the... There's a car that drives along in front of the race. The, the big megaphone on the roof basically just telling fans what's happening. He just said, Warren Bargill has 30 seconds. Johnny, what's going on? The riders are now close enough that we can actually identify who they are, especially with the team cars just behind. So we saw Bargy just sweep around the corner. We can easily spot the jersey of Wat Van Aert. And then further back, you can spot where the other helicopter is. So we assume that is the, the GC group, the POG group. But it's so, on the road, the gaps look much smaller than they actually are because obviously they're going up a huge mountain. <laughs> so they, the gaps don't look that big, but you can also feel the anticipation building here because more cars sort of pass through, more motorbikes. Everyone stopped looking at down the, down the mountain, they're facing the road. And we are per, per, perfectly positioned on the sort of hairpin. So we're gonna be able to see them sweep all the way, come, uh, come all the way up, well, the, the fans probably go in the road, but then sweep all the way round up the bend. What was it that you said right before I hit record? Uh, I sort of like clapped my hands and was like, this is amazing. <laughs> just like, you had one, 
sometimes you just have to catch yourself in moments where it's like, this is pretty great. Uh, the, 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 the nice gentleman that has been offering us a television earlier is now insisted that the entire corner cheer for Warren Barguil. He said, tout le monde, everyone turned around. He started moving his fingers like a conductor. He was like, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> so now we have our orders and we know what to do. Makes it a lot easier. There's also a, a three-year-old boy on his dad's shoulders with the cutest sunglasses and a Legionnaire hat. And his dad told him who was, uh, who was leading the race. And he was like, Baggy, Baggy. <laughs> so there's a lot of excitement. Big Wawa fans. We got a lot of Wawa fans. Here we go. Comes the cops. Tout le monde Wawa is what he says. Not looking in that much difficulties. Obviously, he knows that the GC guys are coming, so he's got to do all he can. It's hot enough, I imagine, when the when Pogacar and the rest come past, it's going to pop off here. And Walt Bernard having a snack. The, Ro the Rogla folks got a wiggle wave. Hanging one leg off of the side of the motorbike. <laughs> and here they come. Pogacar and Vingago still together at the top of the Galibier. Both looking pretty calm, I would say. Here comes Thomas, not too far behind. It, it. Bardet and Thomas. The, the gaps are really not very big. You know, when you're watching on television, you see a gap stretch out to 15 seconds or 20 seconds, but when you're at the top of a mountain here, they can see each other. Here comes Quintana and Kreiswick. Yates, Roglic is uh, having a bad day. Having a bad day, yeah. And I think pretty notable the fact that they left Sepp up with up with Vingigo as long as they possibly could. Sepp's not that far behind. He's probably unlikely to catch on in the descent, but it's possible. I, I think that I mean, I'm just guessing here. I think that maybe Thomas and Bardet get back on in the descent. Depends how crazy Vingigo and Pogacar go. Holy shit. <laughs> uh, the archaic car almost just killed us all. Pidcock. So Pidcock's mm, not a GC threat anymore. Enric Mas. And Enric Mas. So Movie Star pulled the whole thing back together only for Enric Mas to get dropped again. 
Other things you guys have noticed. Uh, I mean, just to the naked eye, you can't really tell that Pogacar and Vigigo are going any faster than anybody else, really. Not really, but... They obviously are. They obviously are, and they're definitely racing. And, I mean, we kind of already suspected, but it's going to be a two-horse race this Tour de France. And, I mean, Geraint will come back, but, I mean, it's already on this first massive mountain day, and it's those two clearly ahead of everyone else. You have to think that Yumbo must be looking to the to the Pyrenees at this point because, well, their their best chance is probably just a tired Pogacar. And, and if you look at even today's climb, Vingago has absolutely no reason to ever take a pull ever, right? And that will remain the same. And here come two UAE riders alongside the team car again, getting sticky bottles. Uh, they look tired, of all the people, they look tired. Uh, this is... Soler and Micah. Yes, Micah's uh, drenching himself with a bottle on his back, such as the heat. Wait, is that? No, it's McNulty. It's Soler and McNulty. But yeah, that's that's quite a far way back compared to, you know, a lot of the Yumbo Visma riders, nearly all of them, really. I mean, they're done today. They are. I, I, I'm... I'm I'm su actually surprised. So Pickcock is still Pickcock is like still riding. Pickcock's kind of riding for, I mean, popping himself into the top ten. Where he was probably eighth or ninth on the road today. Yeah, he was. Uh, he, he he's right. He was right. He was racing. He wasn't just you know getting around. Um, because I guess you want to keep as keep as close as possible. Here comes a quick step rider. I think that might be Bagioli, who was in the break and sort of got caught on the Glibier. They're going to come through in dribs and drabs now uh, until we reach the Gruppetto. Just riders all over the all over the mountain. All right, Johnny, we've just popped on the backside, actually. Gruppetto is the last big group to come across. They're a minute or two from getting here. Oh, I'm gonna try not to fall down the cliff. We're gonna watch this, the, the Gruppetto just hit this descent and in it. Uh, I've had many, many, many pros tell me that, yeah, you, you see you see the riders up front descending and they look impressive, but it's actually the Gruppetto that goes way faster down these descents. What I've never seen before in a bike race in real life is the, the first few, you know, tens of meters directly after the summit where they suddenly like, oh, thank God that's over. <laughs> and they just sort of free wheel for a bit before they really started the descent. And we now see one of the bigger Bahrain riders, maybe Marco Haller. Mm -hmm. I think I've done it where I've got that name from. But um, he was taking it so casually at the top, and now we can see him going, descending down the hairpins, and he's picking up speed. I mean, he's a big bloke, so it's going to happen. But we'll now just see them weave their way all down the other side of the Galibier. I mean, the whole Gruppetto, uh, the strategy. They they know they can only gain so much time, or or I guess maintain so much time on the way up, on the flats. As soon as they go downhill, that's that's their opportunity to to pull back time on the leaders. Because I mean, you know, they're they're fighting time cut on a day like today, right? They got to make sure that they stay close over the Glibier because they still have a whole other climb to do. They'll also try and keep the group as big as possible because the idea is there's safety in numbers, and they're not going to just chuck out half the race. And I mean, the way that today's been written, here comes Thibaut Pino at the top. Thibaut Pino and Joe Dombrowski. So I'm going to take a wild guess and say those two are going to be in the breakaway tomorrow. And Nilsson Paulus, Dylan Van Bala couple of Bahrain guys, I think that was Damiano Caruso as well. So there's still some very good climbers that are making their way up. I mean, yeah, when you see Thibaut Pinot, like maybe a minute or two ahead of the just the disco group, uh, as they call it around here, they're, they're not giving it everything. 
And here is that Gruppetto led across by Alberto Betiol. Bacamolema also in it. Another pretty good bet for tomorrow. Everyone is zipping up. Zipping up, grabbing some food. Yo, Roland. We just got we just got the eyes from Simon Clark. All right, now it is time for us to jump in our car and get out of here. Hopefully get to a television by the time things really kick off. Welcome back, everybody, to the Cycling Tips Tour Daily Podcast. I'm Kaylee Fretz, and we are at the top of Alpe d'Huez. We have skipped ahead just a little bit. Uh, we are in a, a, a quite crowded bar area, so we apologize if there's too much background noise here. But it was the best place we could find, and we have beer coming. So after a very long day, but a spectacular day, one of the best Tour de France stages that we have seen in years, we are here at the top of the Alp to bring it all to you. Now, of course, I've got my, my usual crew with me here today. Johnny, continue setting the scene for me, if you would. Good evening, Kaylee. At the moment, I'm just holding my hand up, trying to signal a way to this very busy bar. I don't, it's not supposed to really be this busy up here at this time of the year, but the, the Tour de France is back. We're surrounded by people drinking Stella Artois. I saw a free Aperol Spritz. People were smoking, everyone's having a good time. We it drove a, up. It's a passive smoker's paradise. Yeah. <laughs> Say that. It, we drove up there. Everyone's already camping out. A lot of tents on tarmac, which is going to make for an interesting night. Yep. A lot of empty crates of beer already. It's just good. It's good vibes when you when you come up these climbs where every it's like a it's a party. Everyone's there. Everyone's for the same. Everyone's there for the same reason. Yeah, to we have, to have fun. Basically, is <laughs> you can put it as simply as that. Except for us sitting here with our podcast recorder and our laptops open. This is fun. Yeah, we're having fun. You can't complain. We 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 booked it over from uh, the bottom of the Glendon, where where obviously everything kicked off today. We've made our way up here. Oh, we just seen some Danes go past. Four Danes on bicycles with big flags and Viking helmets and a big speaker. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt, but that was the clapping in the background. Yeah, I mean, we, well, I was just going to say that we made our way up and, and, and Dutch Corner is already starting to fill up. Danish Corner is also filling up already. Danish Corner, British yeah. British Corner, your favorite corner. Yeah, we just don't do it as well as the other ones. Ours was like British, I don't, I don't say ours because I don't really want to take ownership of it, but British Corner was very neat and pedestrian sort of village green preservation society. It was, everyone was sitting very quietly doing their own thing. There was um, like, they, they had like a drinks uh, trolley with like all the tonics and liqueurs and stuff like that. It just wasn't happening. It wasn't quite the same energy. Yeah, we're getting a lot of weird looks right now, by the yeah, way. Yeah, but it's fine. It's fine. We're used to it. We're very used to it. Uh, the, well, the American corner was just one dude in a flag, so you guys, <laughs> you, you, you beat us, at least for now. Uh, oh, we, you know, we've got a, a couple interesting Americans in this race. We've got Sepp Kuss and Quinn Simmons, who's been in the breakaway a whole bunch. But anyway, we, we really should just stop ambling around scene, yeah. here. We need to stop <laughs> setting the scene and, and get to the bike race. So, but one quickly moment. again before that. Quickly uh, again before we... Trois s'il vous plaît. Large. large. Merci. Three large beers, please. <laughs> Sorry, Kelly. <laughs> that was just very important that we had to do that. We went up the Glibia today, pulled up the, the race on our phones. We're watching it. 
trying to figure out what was going on. Luckily, we got sort of down into service just in time to watch the race, well, hit the bottom of the final climb, and, and not too long after that, just implode. The, the race was absolutely turned on its head today. I am loath to, to ask you to do this because so much happened, but what happened today, Johnny? First off, I'm watching the, the race in the car. We actually saw more of the race today than we have the whole race, which was just a great coincidence. We got very excited at first because Wild Van Aert and Mathieu van der Poel were like a two-man breakaway off the front, and we were like, this is going to be interesting. Our, media, our social media guy, Mikey, uh, wanted to describe it as magical on our social media channels, and we had to kind of dial him down a bit, which is probably good because of everything else that happened in the day. We had Jumbo Visma take the race to Pogaccia on the, the, called the Telegraph, on the way up to the Glibier. They broke off alongside uh, Geraint Thomas and and Pogacar. Tom, Thomas described the Telegraph today as, as doing 30-30s or 30-by-30s, 30 yeah. which is basically like sprint for 30 seconds, recover for 30 seconds, sprint for 30 seconds, recover for 30 seconds. So that tells you exactly how difficult Roglic made the Telegraph, which was only the first major climb of three. They were, they were one-twoing him, and then on the Glibier, Movistar pulled it back for a, for a brief moment. But then it all split up again, and when they came past us with about less than a kilometer to, to go, it was just Pog and Vingago. And that looked like that looked like maybe it was the race, and they were that was, was going to be them up to, up to the Col de Granon. It all came back again with a bigger group on the descent. Then I, I'm pretty sure it was a smaller GC group again going up the Col de Granon at the start, but then was it 5K to go? Did that, I call it the Glandon earlier? You know what? I that, think I did. It's, it's, <laughs> I just, at this point, it's, it's fine. Everyone, corrections quarter. We're going to have a lot of corrections The corner. race finished on the Col du Granon yeah. today. <laughs> we also said at some point that Marco Hallow rides for Bahrain Victoria. So, you know, it's just one of those days where you're going to have to fill in the blanks. But, yeah, Brett, to, to, to quickly finish up the sum of the day, at, at some point close to the top, I think about 5K to go, Jonas Vingegaard sensed weakness in, weakness in Pogaccia after... Nairo Quintana and Roman Bardet have managed to attack from the GC group, which we're not really used to seeing at the, at, at the Tour de France recently because of the pace set by the, the, the dominant team controlling the race. May, who knows if that was really the... No, no, no rider sort of commented on that yet, uh, that being a thing. But at some point, Jonas Vingegaard attacked off the front, dropped Pogaccia. Rafa Maika tried to go after him, but couldn't hold his... Pogaccia couldn't hold his wheel. And Jonas Vingegaard put three minutes into Tade Pogaccia took the yellow jersey. Geraint Thomas dropped Pogaccia. Roman Bardet dropped Pogaccia. Well, stayed ahead of Pogaccia. And we have a whole new GC. I feel I, feel I went a very roundabout way in that, but it's st I think everyone's still kind of processing and still kind of got an elated feeling that we have a bike race. We have, we absolutely have a bike race. In fact, Pogaccia after the stage, he was in sort of surprisingly good mood, I thought. Considering he looked anybody terrible, else, anybody terrible else would have just been clock. like, "Well, I just lost the the Tour de France. Today. I lost three minutes to somebody else." He thinks he can get it back, and he wants revenge tomorrow, which is an even more difficult stage. An interesting observation for me was how different he looked on that climb to how he normally looks on that climb. He seemed visibly uncomfortable as he was riding up, sort of contorted into unusual shapes. Uh, normally he's quite um, quite a blank face, uh, doesn't seem to be breathing that hard a lot of the time, but was visibly suffering. And it seemed to shift quite uh, dramatically and quite quickly because there was a picture that the UAE 
Team Emirates account put out 10 kilometres uh, from the finish with a smiling, smiling Tadej Pogacar um, looking like he was having the time of his life. So in the space of about five kilometres, everything just sort of fell apart for him. And, and that, that's fascinating because it's so different to what we've normally seen. Yeah, and that, that final climb is incredibly difficult. The, the Col de Grenon is, uh, was it 11 kilometers at 9%? And, and multiple riders commented on the, the just incredible difficulty, including Pogacar, just the incredible difficulty of that climb right at the end of the stage. I think that there's a couple kind of key questions that we don't necessarily have answers to, but we can perhaps discuss anyway and, and, and talk about what the options might be. One is the big one, which is why. Why did Pogacar have such issues that, that he has not had previously in literally any stage of the Tour de France? And I think that there are probably a couple options there. There's, there's obviously, you know, it could just be a simple... Hunter, hunger bonk in, in American English, a hundred, hunger knock, uh, whatever, there's many different terms for the same thing, basically a, a you know, glycogen depletion, and when that happens, there's just not a whole lot you can do. You're, you're basically notched back you know, quite a few percent, and there is nothing you can do about it. Could be the heat. It was incredibly hot today, although less so up in on the finish climb, but absolutely really really hot all the way through the valleys the first entire half of the stage and up the telegraph where Roglic was really sort of going at him I mean it, we, were, we were seeing what 36 degrees I think uh, through that through the valley and, and over 30 even up on the climb so that's that's 80 plus almost 90 degrees in, in a lot of today's stage we know that Pogacar doesn't really love heat but I think the reality is and, and frankly he's not going to provide the answer Pogacar's not going to pr provide the answer because we don't really know, and he's not going to tell us because he's not. He doesn't want to indicate to to Jumbo Visma and Ineos how to do it again. Well, and interestingly, in Geraint Thomas's quotes afterwards, he was saying that even when it was just him and Pagacha, that Pagacha was still at times bluffing a bit to make Thomas pull more. So even in that state where it shows what like a mature and calm and collected rider he is, even in, in that extreme pressure environment, he's already thinking, how can I, how can I really race this bike race smart? Yeah, and it's. I think it's also kind of an important thing to note that this was not the result necessarily the result of uh, UAE being too weak, because Rafa Mica was there basically until the key moment. I mean, perhaps, perhaps if Mica was on a great day, he could have stayed with Pogacar and, and saved him an extra 15 seconds or something up to the top. But realistically, at that point, it was mano a mano. It was down to Pog, Pogi, to do it himself. And Mica and the rest of the team, Brandon McNulty as well, they, they had pretty damn good rides today. So it wasn't down to the issue that we thought Pogacar and UA would have, which is essentially team strength. It was just down to on the day, Pogacar had essentially his first bad day of the Tour de France we have ever seen. But although they, Pogacar did say at the start, his team did have to work very hard to control who went in the break. Because obviously, the way that the race is playing out and the lack of those really sort of strong men for the flatter sections means that it's up to those climbers to help control the race. So you are burning matches there, and they have been previously. But I think, I don't know, the, the, the main thing that stuck out was the fact that Previously, Pogacar, he's so fluid on a bike. And like last year, Daniel Freib, in a phrase that I would never get away with, described Pogacar as poetry in motion. Whereas today, he really did not look like that. The open vest, the whole, the, it was clunky. 
it was clunky the way he was riding the bike, which you don't but that's, see. But that's that's what happens when you when you yeah. lose. I mean, that's why I, I'm putting it down. I'm putting it down to some kind of hunger knock, uh, or or you know some sort of fueling problem, or uh, you know hydration issue or something, because it, it just it had all the hallmarks for me of of what that looks like, right? Where like heat is kind of different. Heat makes you do different things. I, I think that that that's my guess anyway. But again, he had three bottles in the in the valley there. It's not it's not like he didn't have supplies coming to him i yeah but you can you can hunger knock while eating at, at when you're when you're producing that kind of outputs you know he could have missed a goo or a gel early on his maybe his body just wasn't processing things as fast as it usually does i mean a big part of it is just that like these pros they can pro they can essentially process more calories than than most of us can while riding Maybe something's off in his system. I mean, I guess the third More COVID. Wow, that's yeah, sorry, that's I just what I was going to say. The, the third, the third option here, which we really hope is not the case, is that he's sick, and whether it's COVID or something else, that it also seems like a pretty likely scenario. On our way out this morning, we we went past the Team UAE Emirates cavalcade, and we saw we're pretty sure we saw Rafa Micah traveling in a team car on his on his own we're with a driver but on his own with a mask on so they're clearly they're clearly still grappling with that and yeah I mean hopefully it's not that uh, but today you saw the fact that it wasn't just Jonas Vingo dropping Pogaccia it was multiple riders dropping Pogaccia it wasn't just a straight out mano a mano he's a better rider we're Pogaccia's already said he's going to strike back tomorrow we're not done yet it's yeah, not as simple I mean, as that I, it's worth saying even though I think it's maybe obvious is that this was not necessarily a whole bunch of riders having amazing days it was Pogaccio having a really bad day I mean he, he finished seventh today right he finished behind <laughs> when was the last time that happened yeah uh, he finished behind Jonas Vingigo Naira Quintana in second Roman Barde Garen Thomas David Godu, Adam Yates and then Pogaccio so all of those riders are not better than than Pogaccio this Tour de France in fact probably maybe only one of them is actually better than Pogaccio at the Tour de France. He had a really bad day. The question is, depending on what caused it, can he recover for tomorrow, which again is even harder, or or is he going to essentially have to get, gonna try to just get through the Alps, maybe lose even more time, and try to pull something back in the Pyrenees? The uh, Pyrenees don't have as many options for clawing time back. Uh, an interesting illustration of the fact that it's, it was a bad day for Pogaccio is uh, that this is the only time since 2020 that he has relinquished the lead uh, or, in fact, not won a GC race. Um, the other time was at Valenciana in 2020 where he lost the lead and then took it back the next day. So he's, he's basically won every stage race that he's entered since 2020. Uh, but this one feels different somehow. It, it, is a reasonably sizable gap. Not that it's an insurmountable one, but it, uh, yeah, it, it does. It does feel maybe like we saw the the mood of the race shift a little bit in favour of Vingegaard. Uh, well, the nice thing as well is what we immediately started talking about because we're focused on. Well, I don't know we we like we think in terms of stories and narratives and like covering tours to France, and we were like, this is great because now. You can root for you don't you, you don't want to root for the Man United of cycling all the time. You want to root for a guy who's 
fell down, come back, like been been through it. Man United is pretty terrible these days, though. It, yeah, and you still can't root for them. To be fair, <laughs> it still feels bad. But the point is, is that now we're like, well, actually, he's he he suffered today, and you couldn't you root for the guys who suffer like that who. You know, pick, pick, like Pogacar after the finish, he picked himself up and was like, you know, I'm going to go again. You know, I lost minutes today, but I'm going to try and take minutes back the next day. And the, that that makes you instantly. We said he's more likable now. It's, it will it's help human, him. human rather than superhuman, and yeah. that's that's a lot more relatable. Yeah, and if he loses this Tour de France, I think it gains him, it gains him fans, right? Or if he, or if it's really close, right? If he yeah. if he struggles to to pull that time back on Vingegaard, you know. I think it. I think it. I think it gains fans for both Jonas Vingegaard and for Tadej Pogacar because Vingegaard mentioned today in his own press conference that he said he said this. Even if I lose this yellow jersey, like this is the pinnacle of my sporting career thus far, and I'm incredibly, incredibly proud of it. And that's exactly the kind of attitude that well that you kind of like to see from from these athletes. Well, you, you noticed it as well. You. Um talking about Jonas Vingegaard and his tears after the stage, but it's the same as the tears in Copenhagen. He's, he's a very humble and articulate yeah. person, I find. I, I think that there's uh, not, not frailty, that's not the right word, but there's, there's like a human, um, human core to him which you don't always see with Tadej Pogacar. He's vulnerable. He's, there's, there's a vulnerability, but it's not, um, not weakness. Oh, it's just yes. like a, this is this is me in as a person in in all of my emotional range and I think that that's quite nice to see and he was also talking about today uh, about his relationship with his partner and his daughter and uh, it's it's quite moving to to hear somebody talk about it in that way and the other thing that I, I found uh, nice in in his post-race press conference was the humility in how he, he wasn't necessarily claiming that win just for himself. There was a lot of kudos to uh, Jumbo Visma who, who rode a very strong stage tactically um, and and it, there's there doesn't seem to be a great deal of ego so it, it was giving credit where credit was due. With Jonas Vingard, in when we were in Copenhagen, we you know spent time talking to Danish people as you know <laughs> as you do. But we we're like learning about the different guys like Kasper Askren and Mads Pedersen and all them. Jonas Vingard, he's from. Oh, I'm going to get this wrong. I'm not sure. I don't think he's from a northern part of Jutland. I think he's from an actual. He's from the real sticks, as it were, and he's from a place where it's very. Everyone is very. It's a real humility. It's very family orientated. And if you notice him going around bike race around the world, he often has his family there with him. And his kids always up. He's always carrying his kid on the podium. Like he did the tour last year, his kid on the podium. There in London last year, Rulo Live when he was doing some like media things, uh, various places. His 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 girlfriend and his child were there. That that is is about the family and the fact that he was on the phone straight after the race, warming down, proved that. But they, yeah, giving the credit to Yamba Visma, the fact that they went out today and they kind of admitted too they they risked the t their tour they were like right we're gonna go for it today and it could all blow up in our face when was the last time we saw that oh when I, was can't, I can't remember I mean, I mean maybe i shouldn't say that maybe we have seen that but but we saw it from teams that weren't actually able to pull it off yeah and when so when you don't pull it off no one remembers right like how many how many times has mobistar just yeah, thrown, bar, 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 just yeah. thrown caution to the wind 
and end up in and drilled it up, uh, drilled yeah. it up like multiple like really hard climbs and nothing. <laughs> they get absolutely nothing. So the impressive thing is that they they laid it all on the line. Yeah. I mean, frankly, it was it was one of the most impressive GC performances from a team that I have seen in my time covering the sport, which is well, well and over against, a decade now. Against like, Pogaccia, against the person like Pogaccia to pull off against here. And, and yeah. such a selfless performance from Primoz Roglic, I think deserves but a mention I, too. I also feel like it's the kind of performance that if teams had been able to pull something like that together against Sky throughout their dominant years and against Ineos, their dominant years, it's the kind of thing that, that needed to, to happen, but teams just maybe didn't have either the, the strength to pull off or didn't have the the just sort of like will to do it or or, or, or internal cohesion i think because yeah. uh, one one question that we had coming into the tour was whether Wout van Aert was going to be able to balance his green jersey aspirations with two gc leaders uh going for yellow and that's fine like <laughs> that that doesn't seem to be a problem for them because primoz roglic has uh basically sacrificed himself in order for Jonas to get the uh, the yellow jersey. And at the at the finish today, Wout van Aert was one of the guys in the breakaway off the front, picked up some green jersey points, was was there like deep into the into the race to help. And at at the finish he went up to he was he was one of the people that interrupted a press conference um, and went up to Jonas Fingergaard and congratulated him and Fingergaard is like, yeah. Fuck yeah, he said. <laughs> Sorry for the swear. But <laughs> well, just a few few stages ago, we were saying with Yumbo Visma, like, something's not right there. There's something going wrong in the team, which it did look like. But then they, I don't know, they, they had their plan. Maybe it's maybe it was just inspiration struck on the bus. It's one like, you know what, maybe maybe this is the time to hit. Like, there's all this COVID uncertainty. Maybe Pogaccia is ill. Maybe they, they don't have the confidence if we attack them straight from the gun on that flat section. They, they pulled it off in a... In a way that you maybe would have expected Ineos to do more to, to like strike that that um, what's it called like I've lost my words I've got, I'm half a beer down I've lost it they they just they just struck in such a clinical way in a clinical fashion and it and it worked yeah if we break it down if we break it down now now there were so many things that happened across this entire stage we can't break down every single moment here but there were a couple big ones for me the first one was getting Wout van Aert and Christophe Laporte into the breakaway that. Vingegaard uh, called, called uh, those two his satellites. Yeah. And I think that that's a really, it's a great word for it. It's one of those classic like Dutchisms where they, yeah. they or I guess in this case Danishisms, but as for a Dutch team, you know, they, they, they sort of, they're, they're almost better with English than we are. So satellites yeah. is a great term for, for what those two were up to. And you get them into the move, and it gives you options, right? It gives you somebody to pull across the flats, which ended up happening, gives you just, just help later down the line if you need it. It's, it's one of the sort of most basic tactical maneuvers in GC racing. The next one, and this is the big one, and this is what you were kind of alluding to, Ian, is that Roglic was all in for the long bomb. But the side effect of the long bomb is that it really forced the entire rest of the GC field to follow one of the absolute strongest riders in the entire race multiple times. Like we said earlier, Garrett Thomas describing it as 30, 30 by 30s going up Telegraph. That is a hard, him saying that, that's probably one of the hardest work, workouts his coach gives him. So for him to make that particular reference is to basically say, 
That was ridiculous. Yeah. That was incredibly difficult. Incredibly, incredibly difficult. So you throw Roglic at it 100%. Now, of course, Roglic is kind of in the back of his head hoping, hey, if I break him and I get a gap, and I drop off the Telegraph and climb the Glibier and drop off the Glibier, like maybe I come into the bottom of the of of the final climb with three minutes, and I am in contention for this Tour de France again. He probably deep down knew that that was not actually going to happen, but it was in the back of his head, right? And that was sort of like plan. I don't know if it was plan A or plan B, but it was it was like the initial attempt. So he does all of that. In fact, he was even attacking through the flats and sort of in between the Telegraph and the Galibier. And that sets this whole thing up because you end up with a really fatigued Pogacar with minimal teammates. Uh, some of them did come back over the top of the Galibier, but you know when we saw Pogacar come by us at the top of the Galibier, it was just him and Fingigo. And his next teammate was Oh, oh there, were, there were three Jumbo Visma riders yeah. between yeah. his... Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if we down. missed Micah, though, because he made that gap back. I think maybe we... Did we see Soler and McNulty? I don't know, but it was... It, he was still asked, but he still looked good at that point. Yep. And he said afterwards uh, that he did feel good at that point. So the whole collapse happened afterwards. I think that... I think that the kind of brilliance of the, of the tactics today were a acknowledgement of the fact that each of these athletes are human beings and everybody out there listening to this podcast who who has ridden a bike knows that when you go out and you ride hard you have good moments you have bad moments you have good days you have bad yeah. days it does it, that's the same for all of these these riders right one of the reasons why sky and Ineos rode the way that they did is because it essentially helped to mask bad moments you couldn't tell when Chris Froome was having a bad moment. You couldn't tell when Bradley Wiggins was having a bad moment. We've heard since then, both of them in the interviews have talked about moments where they basically say, if I'd been attacked in this in this stretch, I might have lost the Tour de France. But we never knew because there were six Sky guys still in front of them and yeah. nobody dared do anything. That happens to every single rider. There is no exception to that rule. And what Yumbo did today was essentially take advantage of that fact without the knowledge that it would actually happen yeah, without nice the knowledge to, Pogaccio to that list yeah without the knowledge that Pogaccio would actually have a bad moment but take advantage of the essentially slim chance that this was going to be the day and it happened to to work out so it was it was bold it was really well done and it worked it could have gone so spectacularly wrong yeah. and we could be sitting here and talking about Pogaccio having 7 minutes this evening but it didn't, and and frankly, like the whole Tour de France and us and everybody here, I don't want to say we're excited about it. You don't you don't you don't like to see people have bad days, but we are we have a Tour de France. We felt we felt a lift on the yeah. on the drive up. We got to the top and we're like, you know, we're we're obviously happy that we're ahead of the race, and actually tomorrow morning we're gonna get we're gonna get a breather. But I don't. We we said we don't. I don't think we'd be feeling this like uplifted if we didn't have a proper bike race to look forward to but should we talk about Ineos for a second I think the most interesting thing today was the last thing that Geraint Thomas said and he said that you know tomorrow's gonna be another tough day but I hope we'll play a part because if you actually think about what happened today yes he finished ahead of uh, Pogaccia but he's still four seconds behind him in third place on the GC they still 
even though they, it's the first time that they've actually managed to drop Pogaccio on one of these big mountain stages in the Tour de France, they're still not ahead of him in the general classification. So there's more work to do for them to actually be in the fight for this Tour de France. They've got Adam Yates, who rode a great race, and he's only 40 seconds back, uh, further back than Geraint Thomas. Tom Pigock also rode fantastically. We saw him, he looked phenomenal. He's in 11th, uh, he's 11 minutes down on Vingal. But that's an interesting guy to have. Nairo Quintana is in fifth. I love it. I love it. Today, just it just turned the whole race upside down. We've got Roman Bardet in second place. And Warren Bargui, we won't even be able to talk about what he did today, but for wow. a while, wow, wow. <laughs> there was a, with the French guy, we were watching the race with Naglibia, you'll hear it, uh, or you've heard it already. He was, we, were, we were being told to chant wow, wow, to encourage him on, and he just sort of faded back down the race as, every, as a whole box of like more significant fireworks exploded in everyone's faces. If we were more equipped, we would have written a Wawa story, but there's about like 10 different storylines that are more important than Wawa. But shout out to Wawa. I, I enjoyed watching him today. I, I think, Kaylee. Well, you, you may have enjoyed watching him today, but my perception of Wawa has changed in, in oh. the last two weeks. <laughs> I never we're going to get into this. <laughs> This is a bit of a bit of a tangent. This but is this a, a tangent a, where we're about to throw Buggy under a bus. Yeah, this is well, this has been a pretty straight and narrow podcast, particularly compared to the last few days. <laughs> uh, no, I was I was it was after the Roubaix stage, and I was over near uh, the Ajitoire bus and Ben O'Connor, who had had a, a very rough day. That's why I was there. I would wanted to talk to him about it, and uh, he was basically just sort of like ducking the rope under, like to his little bus paddock. And I don't know, Warren Buggy thought he was in the way or something. Buggy comes sort of flying past and yells something, and I couldn't really tell what it was. And O'Connor just like f flips a switch and just screams his at, at, at Wawa something about, and I'm not gonna, I'm gonna paraphrase this, I can't remember the exact quote, something about, you're not the king of France, <laughs> you have to go around me. The, um,. <laughs> The, uh, the non-diet version of that quote is uh, much better, and maybe, maybe on the Velo Club we're like we'll, we'll put the we'll put the, the true the full fat quote in, <laughs> and then just sort of mumbled under his breath for a while about how much he hated Warren Bargill. So you don't see uh, Ben O'Connor very often, yeah. but I'm glad that exists. <laughs> glad that exists. Ad adding well, fuel no to that particular fire, I, I would also say that there's uh, in research for a Garen Thomas sunglass story yesterday. Um, the reason that Garen Thomas lost a pair of those sunglasses, which he was wearing again today, FYI, uh, was because Warren Baggio crashed into him. And they, they exchanged words after that. So from 2015 until 2022, we, uh, we understand that there are a couple of, a couple of spikes in anti-Wawa sentiment <laughs> within the peloton. But I, I cannot definitively say that uh, that has been consistent. It could just be like a, a very... I get, I get a sense that Ben O'Connor might be the nicest man on earth, mm. and I, I don't know that. I don't know him. No, I think, I think I, I'd, I'd take a good bet on that. Like yeah. a top ten. He's like yeah. a top ten nicest man on earth. And so if he doesn't like you and he screams at you that you yeah. are not the king of France and you should just fucking slow down, then I feel like you might be a dick. So I think Wawa well, well, might be a dick, and I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm. Is this going to be on a T-shirt as well? <laughs> Turf the France, and also Wawa well, well, might be a dick. <laughs> For balance, I feel like I, I should just express my, my opinions about Wawa, which is that he very well may be a dick, but uh, 
at the 2019 tour, he had a very, I, I think he's quite a small-headed man. Uh, <laughs> We're really, somehow we've gone uh, Hang the- on, no, no, no. Let me finish this thought. And, and he had a, an enormous trucker hat. That he just looked like he'd borrowed his dad's trucker hat. And at that point, he'd just navigated a difficult exit from Sunweb. He'd um, ridden against team orders, I believe, in the tour the year before and been kicked out of the race, and that, hence why he was at RKS Umzik. Um But in the, in the years since then, he seems to have matured and has become a father himself, so he doesn't look like he's wearing... Uh, he's a dad. He looks like he's wearing his dad's trucker hat, but he is also a dad wearing a dad's trucker hat. So that, that is my... Uh, Acceptable daditude. That is my Russian doll of Wawa. Uh, yeah. But within that, I will also allow for a, a possibility that he is still a dick. There's, is there anything? I mean, there's something wrong with being a dick. But then, like, if you don't have people who are dicks, is. then you have people who are not dicks. Yeah. You got to make the differentiation somewhere. Light that's, and shade. That's the that's the um, that's the that's the backing up of Wawa. I've got a theory that I just thought of when you guys yeah. when Ian mentioned the Garen Thomas's glasses. What if because he switched glasses for that one day, it sort of caused a rift in the space-time continuum, and we've now entered a parallel universe where Tade Pogaccia is beatable. I mean, it's as good a theory as I've heard about today, honestly. I feel it's like, a better theory I feel, like that's, I feel like that's something that Ian should investigate and write a lot of words on. Yeah. Not to, not to give you work, but just, I want to know the answer. Just punch out a 20,000 word number on that. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. I mean, who expect? I mean, I didn't, we kind of, we, we both just said yesterday on the podcast, maybe Jonas would have a, have a good day. But I, d- I think that was more hopeful predicting rather no, than... No, I'm, I'm claiming it. You're claiming I, it. I, I think we are the Oracle. <laughs> I feel like we're going to be talking about today for the next couple days. Actually... Uh, well, depending on what happens tomorrow. Depending on what happens tomorrow. Yeah. Just a wild day. Just so much good stuff. Um, I, I feel like we could unpack it for hours. And I, 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 I just... I want to actually cut it off. We have some other things to talk about before we wrap up today. The first and most important is a corrections corner. Ian, uh, you blew it yesterday. I made a big mistake. You made a big one. I'd like to apologize to the listeners. Correct yourself. I referred to Astana Kazakhstan and their prize money for this year's Tour de France as uh, being 600 euros. I was not accounting for the fact that they have been fined 350 euros. So I will correct myself to say that their balance at this point in the Tour de France is 250 euros, which probably means that I think I I believe that I said that Joe Dombrowski was in line for 20 euros in Paris, but I think it might be less. So sorry, Joe. Sorry, Astana. It'll be what 200? What did you say? 250? 250. 250 divided by eight team members and staff. I think. I think they divided. We haven't. We haven't checked the uh, the list from today either. That's true. So somebody could do a, a forbidden we, and then then we could be in all sorts of trouble. All it takes. Alexei Lutsenko is eighth. Do you get money for eighth? Yeah, maybe. Well, we'll, we'll have to correct ourselves again but no, tomorrow. But no, no, no uh, decisions today. Maybe they gave him a day off because the race was so good. And they're like, you know what, you guys, you guys earned it. You guys earned it. That was spectacular. 
Um, what what I also like about the uh, our day on the Galibier is that when you listen to that audio, we lived in the before times where Pagaccio was unbeatable, and we were. If you listen, if you can, you, if you really listen to our voice and how we're talking, that was how that was that was how everyone existed. That was the world as we knew it. And now we live in the post world, and everything is different. And I think you can you can hear that. Uh, a general excitement, perhaps. We also have. Last but not least today, the Mayo Sablo. Yes. Ian, you have, you have a prediction. Yeah, I, I missed out on the Mayo Sablo earlier on. Uh, and, and what I want to express is that I think Danny Martinez from Ineos is a good shot for the Mayo Sablo. I have not done my homework to find out where he is in the Mayo Sablo at this point. But there's a lot of racing still to be done. Uh, have, you, have you got that stat for me? I have bad news Danny for Danny Martinez is so close. I have bad he's news He's so for close you. to it. <laughs> he is, but he's not in it. He's, he's not in it. I'll have to ask Ian because you've just seen it, Kaylee. The, the, the rider who's in it spent a lot of time after the stage. We were driving alongside him and he was like looking at our car. I spent a lot of time making eye contact with him because I think he thought we were doing something weird. And I was like, why are you looking at us? And it was, uh, I feel now like sort of spiritually connected Movistar? to him. Movistar? I, I did not know who that was. It is at a time of one minute, zero minutes and 16 seconds, moving up nine places to 46th. It's none other than the Spaniard Carlos Verona. That's and good probably why he was looking at us. My my Mayo Sable my, my um, guess is for Paris. Oh, I see. So okay. I, I, I very well know that Danny Martinez is not in the Mayo Sable oh, now. Oh, sorry. I thought, I thought that was a spectacular Because I, I think of... he'd be... What, like 30 minutes back, if I had to guess? He's in, well, what, today? Today, uh, no, not today, I, just general. on the GC. Oh no, he's, he's at an, an hour and 37 seconds. He's literally two positions. Carlos Verona is 46th, then it's Kevin Jennings from Groupama FGG, one hour, 33 seconds. Martinez, one hour, 37 seconds. But he could move up, because he could, re he could recover. I think he'll third come week. good. I, I expect I so. some uh, sleight of hand from Martinez. I think you'd get good odds on that if a bookmaker gave odds on the Mayo Sabla. How bad is Danny Martinez riding at the moment? He's yeah, currently right next to Stefan Kung, who literally <laughs> outweighs him by probably 35 kilos. He is, he is physically twice the man that Danny Martinez is. Danny Martinez was in a, a group quite far back today when he came oh. past. It was a bit of a... He, he, we'd, but point we'd gone uh, yeah. down to our car on the other side of the climb he came past you kind of thought like oh although, although Ineos does do this thing where and and this is more when they were winning the tour but they do this thing where they actually they take their domestiques and they just they just give them a day off they literally are like you're not needed today you hang out in the groupetto you come back better two days from now so that could yeah. be what he was doing today you come back two days later and you fight for that most heavily yeah. Danny Martinez <laughs> you I dig deep I, and you win it I believe in him the, the main reason that I wanted to <laughs> bring up... You said that so seriously. You, Faraday Brown, like, I believe in him. I do. I, I'm, I'm nothing I like if it. not earnest about Danny Martinez. And the main reason I'm earnest about him is because he always has the most immaculately trimmed goatee, like, uh, beyond Alaphilippe levels. Alaphilippe just looks like a, like a trendy guy in France. <laughs> Danny Martinez looks like a street magician. Full, full supervillain. <laughs> so, Hear it. Guess your card, and if so, I will blow up the world. <laughs> I like. I like that. No matter how serious and sort of like intense we were about the race discussion, we can like sort of end the podcast talking about Nani Martinez's facial hair. We know how to keep it real. All right, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening. Actually, there's no ad today. 
Um, so instead, instead, I will remind everybody out there that, uh, well, if you're not already a Velo Club member, Velo Club supports what we do over here. It's the reason why we can make this podcast, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. So if you're not a member, join. And it gets you past our little paywall that we've got these days. So that's nice as well. You can read all the stories that you could ever want whenever you want. Before we get any further, we got to hear from Jose today. Here we go. We are in Briançon, or Brian Kahn, as one Dutch person once told me when I did my summer job in France helping stranded Dutch tourists about 20 years ago. There was also Nancy, that one man who couldn't find his car in Paris and only knew he parked it near one of the over thousand bridges, and people indicating where they were stranded, saying they had just passed the village sign of Prochain Sortie. But Briançon, it's the highest village in France at 1,326 meters. It's the second highest in Europe behind Davos in Switzerland. Briançon has always been an important place strategically because it's on the way to Italy. It also lies on the crossroads of no less than five valleys. It first became French in 1349, then became part of the Savoy Kingdom and back to France in 1713. Briançon is one of the 12 so-called Vauban fortifications. It consists of 12 groups of fortified buildings and sites along the western, northern and eastern borders of France. They represent the finest examples of the work of Sébastien Le Prestre de Vauban, who was born in 1633 and died in 1707. He was a military engineer, an architect and town planner to King Louis XIV, also called the Sun King. Faubon fortifications bear witness to the peak of classic fortifications typical of Western military architecture. They're also called the Iron Belt of Strongholds on the French border. For example, Stage 6, where Tadej Pogacar won and took the yellow jersey, finished in Longwy, and that is one of the 12 fortifications on the northern border with Belgium. Briançon is a classic Faubon-style fortification with 3 kilometers of walls and 4 forts around it. The most magnificent one is Fort des Trois-Têtes. There are walkways to connect them on often very steep slopes. Sadly, they are seriously threatened by the degradation of the rocky foundations, severe frost and a general lack of maintenance. But luckily, a lot of work is already done, but it's an ongoing process. Today's stage will be a seemingly endless list of amazing Alpine helicopter shots. If the weather is okay, that is. If the most recent edition of the Criterium du Dauphiné is anything to go by, we're in for a treat. Or maybe you don't like the Alps at all. That is possible, but we cannot be friends. Today's stage finishes at one of the most well-known climbs in the world, the Alpe d'Huez. It's almost a staple on the Tour de France menu, but after the first climb in 1952, the organizers weren't convinced and only returned in 19. 76. Fausto Coppi may have had something to do with it. He showed such ease that the organizers might have thought that the dreaded climb was just too easy. This is what Max Vavalelli, the special envoy to the event, recounted. With a little bit of humor, that is. If you had been on the steep slopes leading to Alpe d'Huez on Friday and had seen Coppi go by, upright on his bike, hands on top of the handlebars, you might have said to yourself, Hey, I've been taught lies. This road is perfectly flat. Well, the Alpe d'Huez is the Dutch mountain, 
with eight wins out of 30 for Dutch riders, the roadbook tells me. But that's male riders, because Leontine van Morsel fought a epic battle in 1992 with her eternal rival Jeannie Longo in the Women's Tour de France. They were actually surplusing on the mountain. Van Morsel won, and with that victory on the Dutch mountain, she also secured the overall win by nine seconds on Longo. In 1993, Van won again on Alpe d'Huez. For the record, the other Dutch winners are Joop Soetemelk in 1976 and 79, Henny Kuiper in 77 and 78, Peter Winne in 1981 and 83, and Gert-Jan 89 and Stefan Rooks 88, only won it once. Tom Dumoulin, Tom Dumoulin almost won it in 2018 after a very brave and very long attack by Steven Kruiswijk starting on the Croix de Fer. Well, almost indeed, because it was Garin Thomas who won that year. And then he went on to win the Tour de France as well, with Tom Dumoulin in second place. And with that, we're going to call it. We're, we're done for today. The... French people around us will stop staring at us for a little while, and we'll be back probably from the same place <laughs> tomorrow. In fact, what we should do is make a dinner reservation for tomorrow right now, because what we did earlier was wander around and fail to secure dinner over and over again, because we didn't make a reservation. So let's do that for tomorrow, and we'll, we'll, we'll come to you from some lovely restaurant here on Alpe d'Huez after what promises to be a spectacular stage of the Tour de France, whatever may happen. Until then, thanks everybody.